today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. Now, my listeners know that I'm a, a huge James Bond fan. So, you know, with the new film coming out, in case you haven't heard, it's called No Time to Die. Uh, I thought we might take an episode or two to highlight some great music from the series. Now, our guest is a journalist by trade, but he's also a big fan of James Bond. In fact, so big, he's been part of a, a website dedicated to all things Bond since 2008. And his interests go beyond just James Bond, and we'll get a little bit into that as the program goes along. But until then, I hope that you'll all join me in welcoming Bill Koenig to the program. Hi, Bill. Hey, Frank. Great to be here. Oh, and I, I, I very much appreciate it. As I was telling you, it was in our pre-production meeting, for lack of a better way of saying it, that uh, I've been a fan. I've en- enjoyed your writings and those sorts of things on the internet. And for those of our listeners that haven't partaken, hopefully at the end, they'll be intrigued to do the same. So anyway, I appreciate you being with us. Um, as is our uh, tradition on the podcast, we always like to get in, to know a little bit about the, the person, the individual um, that we're talking to today. So I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself uh, growing up and family and, you know, th- profession, all those sorts of things kind of that help paint a picture of you. Well, I grew up in uh, Indiana, uh, Bloomington, a college town, um, although my father did not was. He was not a professor or anything at the university. Uh, he worked at a, an industrial company. He had an engineering background by way of education. Um, but I, uh, you know, had two brothers and a sister. Um, in a way, I'm kind of a child of the spy craze. And, um, you know, I, you know I, younger fans of bond and other things probably don't realize just how big spies were in the 60s but they oh were, you're right about that yes it was enormous and uh i got hooked on it by way of a tv show called the man from uncle but now but i kind of segued into bond because in the second season of uncle they preempted it one week in november of 65 and they had this television special the incredible world of james bond uh-huh yeah and it was in t- it was really a promotional thing, but 
it's really well done and i've you know it's it's an extra on at least some thunderball um uh, home video right. releases so and originally in fact uh sean connery was supposed to be the narrator but he pulled out at the last minute so they hired this uh character actor named alexander scorby who had this wonderful voice and he kind of gave it a gravitas i guess today you would you would consider this special kind of infomercial but uh scorby's voice kind of gives it this gravitas maybe it doesn't really deserve it but no it was it's you know very well done very well edited and you can see you can see why it was so uh why bond was a big deal and so the clips they show they're not just little quick clips some of them are kind of extended so that that was kind of the beginning for me getting hooked and then i ended up seeing thunderball must have been sometime in 66 because i remember the weather being kind of warmer and of course thunderball came out at christmas so right it must have been a few months you know after the initial release but i remember seeing it at a drive-in and uh it was anyway yeah it was just huge and that was you know the beginning of uh my fandom with uh, james bond and then uh, uh, I'm assuming uh, in your spare time, you did other things like get educated and maybe take a job or something. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, yes, I indeed. I ended up going to Indiana University, uh, graduated in 80, worked a number of newspaper jobs, um, ended up working at Bloomberg News here in the, the Detroit area. I moved up, uh, well, 20 years ago now, um, you know. I was I was part of a downsizing <laughs> back oh, in 2013, boy. so yeah. I'm cur- so I'm currently working in the trade press area, but uh, uh, but you know still still using the same basic skills of you know writing, reading, interviewing, analyzing. Sure. Now, and, and if I'm trying to remember, if memory serves, doesn't Indiana University have some kind of a nice connection to James Bond? Yes, it does. Uh, there I are. So. There are about 15 Ian Fleming manuscripts at the Lilly Library of uh, IU. Now, the Lilly Library is not the main library. It's, it collects basically rare books and such. You know, their, their prize uh, possession is a Gutenberg Bible, for example. But the way they got the manuscripts wow. was they, they weren't even after the manuscripts. They were after Ian Fleming's book collection of, you know, he had that collection of first edition, some going way back. And that's, that's what the Lilly library was after. Huh. And they got, and they got the manuscript and some other uh, documents kind of as a toss in like, yeah, here, here you go. <laughs> Consolation prize. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Have you, have you ever seen them? Yes. Uh, I've, I've gone there twice. Uh, once in 1997, and then again, most recently in 2019, um, you have a chance. I mean, the manuscripts, I mean, you know, he, you know, they're typed up. The paper's kind of delicate. You have to be careful with it. Um, you know, you can see where it's been Fleming marked it up and, wow. uh, and the ink kind of bled through in some places, but, uh, and it's just, it, it. I remember one thing that caught my eye was 
back in those days when he wrote those those novels, I guess they didn't have a one key on a typewriter. So it's so he's using a capital I. <laughs> so so like so nineteen fifty one is capital I nine five capital I. <laughs> How funny. How funny. Yeah. You know, um so journalism became your trade, I guess, as it, as it were. And I, I want to talk to you about that here in a moment, but you know what? I, I think I want to dive into some of the music that, that you've uh, chosen and, but I'm not going to start with Bon yet because you, you, uh, you and I also share another favorite composer of ours and, 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 and but it's still part of the spy genre. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, as you accurately said, people that weren't around in those days, and, and I'm old enough to have been around in those days, it, the sixties was, I mean, it was insane. The spy craze that was going, I can still, still picture in my mind at the toy store, seeing the Thunderball swim fins and, and mask. And, you know, I mean, all the, the road race set, I mean, all the toys that were out there was just, yeah, it was insane. Uh, so the spy set. craze was huge. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was about to say, and, and there were, um, of course, toys associated with, you know, TV spies as well. Yeah. But yeah I'm, 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 in fact, I had the man from uncle gun. I remember. I did too, and unfortunately, yeah. I destroyed it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, the natural wear and tear of playing with it. But uh, you know, puzzles, games, um, just all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, they were, in fact, they really revolutionized, didn't they? Uh, marketing for films. I think. I don't. I don't know if it really had gone on that much uh, prior to that. I re- I remember at our house we we got the uh, Thunderball. Uh, puzzle and it's uh you know it, it, it's that one oh, i forget which illustrator it was there's mccarthy there's mcginnis i forget which one it is but and it, isn't it with him on the jetpack um no it's it's underwater it's the underwater oh, fight, oh, okay and he's know. fighting without a mask on and yeah yeah okay. yeah so it's that and it was like really big and it i remember it took a long time to you know get that puzzle put together yeah um but anyway, there, you know, during that time, it was interesting. Everybody started to get on the bandwagon. Uh, you already mentioned one. There was Man with Uncle, uh, Man, uh, Man, uh, the Man from Uncle, right? Uh, in American, in America TV, there was Get Smart. There was another film series, Matt Helm. I mean, it, 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 everybody right. was trying to, you know, hook up to the spy craze. And the then wild, there was another the wild, wild West. You know, oh, yeah. spies oh, and God, I love that show too. Yeah, I yeah, watched, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, so, I mean, it was everywhere. And and another series that came out that, that, that I also liked as much as you did was a series uh, with the, uh, the American spy, Derek Flint. Uh, and there were, there were two films that we're going to, we're going to talk about today. Uh, and some of the music from that written by the, the maestro, Jerry Goldsmith. Um, the first one would be, I guess the main title from our man Flint, which if I memory serves was the, the first of the series of films. Yes, that's um, right. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to choose that amongst your, uh, your favorites since our theme was the, you know, the spy craze. Um, you know, Goldsmith is just a wonderful, um, whatever the genre. And I, th- I just thought it'd be interesting, uh, to, to include him in, in this. Um, you know, in fact, some of his lesser known works have become available in the last 10 years, which we can talk about in more detail later, but, uh, you, 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 know, you can get, it's possible to get some of his television work. Um, yeah. So. He was prolific, wasn't he? He was. And he's an interesting, he's interesting, but he's also a little bit of a mystery mm-hmm. because I kind of gather, I've read this, that, you know, he was interviewed a number of times over his career. 
But anytime anyone tried to get him to talk about his creative process, how he went about putting the score together, just had a, just couldn't really get him to, to talk about it. And maybe it's just so deep. Maybe it was just so deep in him. He just didn't have the words for it, but, um, and he, and he's prolific and versatile. I mean, he, yes, he has, you know, like a lot of composers who were at it for a long time, you know, I guess he went through different phases, you know, orchestrations varied and, and so forth. But, no, I I, th- I think he's like one of the I, I think he's one of the best and I um, concur. Yeah, and and for those um, who want to know more about it, there is something called the Archive of American Television. What it and what that was, they would take people aside, do like two hour interviews, basically get them to talk about their career and, and such. And um, so I've I've seen that. And one interesting thing I find about Goldsmith. I, I tell you, Bill, if I may, let, why, oh, okay. why, don't we, why don't we play this cue first and then we can come right. back to that? Is that okay? That's fine. That's I, a I would good like idea. To talk about it. I would like yeah. to talk about it. Folks, okay. it, 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 great, piece of, great piece of music here. And, and to me, in my view, quintessential 60s music. I just love this piece. This is the main title from Our Men Flint, and it's written by Jerry Goldsmith. left off talking about this uh, this interview that you said is available on the internet and and it is fascinating i'll i'll, I'll put the link up on my uh, facebook page for what's the score uh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off but let, uh, tell me a little bit more about about that interview and what you liked about it well one thing that i found fascinating was with goldsmith you could never really tell you know if he didn't like the project he was he was working on you couldn't tell it by his music um so in the course of this interview, he refers to the man from Uncle as being silly. You know, like he he scored the pilot in two other episodes, and of course, he he wrote the theme for the series. Right. Um, 
And then he specifically talks about Barnaby Jones. He scored the pilot for Barnaby Jones. And he he saw the pilot and he called his agent up and said, get me out of this thing. I think this is terrible. <laughs> but 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 his agent, you know, Goldsmith had gone through a divorce and and he was in a bit of a career slump. You know, his you know, the movie offers had kind of dried up for a while. Huh. And the the agent said, Well, Jerry, I think you need the money. I think you better stick with it. And and so he did. <laughs> and um but you you can't tell it by if you've ever seen the pilot to that show you can't tell it by the the work he produced and ironically i i think he got a lot of residuals from the theme of that probably yeah yeah because it was on for like seven and a half years um but yeah it's whether he liked the the project he was scoring or didn't care for it he always did a really high quality job and in the interview he gets into like his earliest days oh you know he, he's got a James Bond connection. That 1954 Casino Royale on oh, CBS. That's right. Now, if on the IMDb listing it says Goldsmith did the music, that's not accurate. Um, what he did for that was he was given the assignment of going through the CBS Music Library, selecting the cues to go on the show that would be used on the show. Hmm. He, he was more of a music supervisor. Now, later in that series of live shows, he did do original music, but but not for Casino Royale. Yeah, and, and when you learn more about that, it's insane when you think about it. Sometimes these were like, what, weekly series, and he'd have like one week to come up with, you know, to write all this music. And then if, if memory serves, they performed it live, right? Right, when they, when they switched to doing original music. I mean, yeah. can, can, I mean and, can you imagine? I mean, all, all that, you know, first of all, the pressure of just trying to put something together in a week. And then, of course, they got to rehearse it, you know, so you, I, I guess they had to rehearse it at least a little bit. And then you got to be spot on target when, we're, when it's being done live all across the country. I mean, it's just insane to think it was like that. And, and even when it was just selecting existing tracks, I mean, that was, he describes the routine involved and just, you know, a lot of, a lot of long days. And, you get the impression, boy, that was that must have been crazy. And I think he even says something to the effect of, you know, he was so young he didn't know how crazy it was. <laughs> um, the uh, another cue you chose was, I think, from the second film in the series, uh, in like Flint. We were going to play the the main title, and again, this is quintessential '60s. I love this as well. Uh, I, I, technically, I think it's called when when, and I remember the movie too. When the bad guys are girls. Um, Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what was it you liked about this particular cue that you wanted to include it? Well, the, uh, the, the selection, it's, it's an instrumental version of a song that Goldsmith wrote with Leslie Brickus called Your Zowie Face. Now, for the uninitiated, uh, the organization that on occasion employed Flint Services was the Zonal Organization for World Intelligence and Espionage, or Zowie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That that gives you a sense of like this, you know. Basically, this was Austin Powers before there was Austin Powers. Yeah, um, yeah that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, but the fact that somebody could come up with a song called "Your Zowie Face" is amazing enough as it is. Uh, but anyway, they did this instrumental for the main titles. Um, with with the first movie, Our Man Flint, the titles were kind of Maurice Binderish with you know silhouettes and and things. With this one, it's it's more simple. It's uh, the plot involves a group of women trying to take over the world, and you see this resort, which is kind of their home base, and one of you know, 
one of the women in employee of the organization, she's going around this resort. That's that's what they use for the main title. But you hear this music and you know it's it's wonderful. But yeah, they let's, did, uh, yeah let's let's listen. Yeah, let's have a listen to this. This again from the film In Like Flynn, it was used for the main titles, but technically it's called Where the Bad Guys Are Girls. Again, written by the Maestro, Jerry Goldsmith. You and I both agree that uh, on Goldsmith and uh, what he meant to film music, and, and I will get it more into that here a little, little bit later on, but I am kind of curious, outside of the spy genre, are there, I don't know, two or three other scores of Goldsmith that uh, that you particularly like? Um, you know, uh, Chinatown. Chinatown's ah, yeah. really good. And it's a kind of a short score. And this kind of gets back to the way Goldsmith worked. You know, he was he could be very strategic about what he would write music for. So again, that's that movie's an example where if you you know compile all the tracks, it's not that long. But you know, I mean, he could he could uh, he makes you know, an impact. He does. He does. Yeah. And uh, 
I've got this disc late in his career. He did concert shows. And so he, you know, you know, came up with a program of, you know, music based on his scores. Um, in fact, I've got the CD here just looking at some of the selections. There, there is a CD of, of, a, of a concert. Yeah. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. Uh, the Blue Max Suite running right. six, 16 minutes. Masada, which is a um, TV movie, yeah, yeah, maybe even a mini series. Um, let's see, Gremlin Suite. Um, oh, and then a medley of movies. So it's about fifteen minutes in total, but it you know has stuff from Sand Pebbles, Chinatown, Patch of Blue, Poltergeist, Papillon, The Wind in the Line. Oh, The Wind in the Line. Oh, that's great. That is that is really good. The Generals, which is a suite of music from MacArthur and Patton. Oh, Patton, my Patton. Gosh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw Patton first around the theater. And that, you know, first it comes out with George C. Scott, given that profanity-laden talk to the troops. And then, <laughs> and, and then you have the main titles proper. And that's really haunting because you see this battlefield. There's a lot of dead bodies and, you know, Goldsmith's music. So... I mean, it's once you get <laughs> once, you, once you get me started, I, I, it's hard to stop. So I, no, I'll I stop there. Well, you know, and 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 we will dive more into the uh, into the Bond films here in a minute. But but I was interested, given your background, to kind of get off film scores for a minute. You're you're uh, uh, by trade or or educated as a, as a journalist, correct? Yes. Okay. I, I'm just curious what. What are your thoughts on the state of journalism these days? Oh, it's so sad. It's um, it is, isn't it? It you know, it, it, local newspapers, which have traditionally, I mean, some have been good, some are not so good, but they have been kind of the way of kind of keeping an eye on local governments, state governments, and they have just taken it on the chin. Uh, you know, the advertising shifted to well, like Google and, and, you know, whatnot. Um, Clicks. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get clicks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, really hard to make a living. And I know, you know, I mean, I know people who are still in it and, and even more who aren't in it anymore, like former colleagues. Um, yeah, it, it really is sad. And they, you know, they still, they need to find, a working model. Now, some of them, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, they appear to, but I mean, but they're national. They're, you know, and it's like the, you know, Washington Post isn't going to cover your uh, local school board or right. city council. Um, I mean, it's just a, such a different animal. And, you know, there are some newspaper owners that are just bleeding them dry. Um, yeah, I mean, I realize we're not going to fix all the problems with journalism, but I was just curious someone who's had your background about how you felt about it. It's a, uh, it's, it's just shocking to see the results of polls that say that yeah, essentially no one trusts the news media anymore. And I don't care what media you listen to. It's, and it's just uh, you're right. It is. It's sad. Yeah. Well, let's get away from that. That's too depressing. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, I just, I was just kind of curious on a personal note about how you felt about that. Now, I mentioned that uh, uh, both you and I are James Bond fans, and I think I can probably be pretty safe in saying we're both like really big 
John Barry fans, and my listeners know that about me. They know I'm biased about it, so I'm guilty as charged. Um, there was um, there was one film in particular that you really liked the score for, um, and I think we're going to highlight at least a, a couple of cues from that. And that the film was "You Only Live Twice." So, talk to me a little bit about uh, what, what what's your uh, affection for "You Only Live Twice"? So str- I mean, literally, when I said pick some cues from the Bond films. You sent me like almost the entire "You Only Live Twice" album. I mean, so, so you obviously have a really strong feeling for that. So, uh, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I guess it goes. Uh, you know, I saw "You Only Live Twice." Uh, had must have been the summer of '67, uh, but it was not like when it was first out. It was like maybe a little somewhat later. It was at a drive-in. It was on the bottom half of a double bill with. That's uh, that's how I saw it. Yeah, the good, but the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah, and uh, and you know, like I was too young to appreciate that movie because so like you know it's like in the car and I'm kind of sleepy and then then when you only live twice came out I was like perked up and and in particular right away the be- you know the beginning of the pre-titles where you know the the American space capsules in orbit and then gets captured by the the intruder missile or whatever they right. called it and just you know that music scared the bejesus out of me <laughs> it, it just it was like well that was just really intense and in fact i saw it three years later a double feature with thunderball you know this was in, you know in an indoor theater and like though i knew what was coming it still scared me you know, so yeah <laughs> that's how intense that that particular and, piece and, is and, and, and you know it's 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 cool i i was very very lucky i mean more than lucky to to, to see him in concert in 1999 uh in london and and he is a memory serves me right and he did it the night i saw him but i the few concerts that he did do he usually featured capsule in space i mean it's just that powerful it is it is and you know i mean first of all all his bond scores are great but I, you know it, it for whatever reason you only live twice is my favorite um i i there's a little there's there's some variety to it um you know that that fake wedding ceremony music for example is yeah. you know totally different from the action cues and you know it's, but it's very you know well and, and to me it. and to me the title song might be i don't know if it's my favorite but i think it must be one of the most beautiful songs ever written in history you know what i'm saying yeah and it's just and, gorgeous and and the thing is, they had a lot of trouble with Nancy Sinatra getting right. a single take. I mean, this is pretty well documented now that what they ended up doing was piecing together parts of multiple takes to come out with you know what was in the movie with the vocal, yeah, yeah. Well, so you chose you did choose t- Capsule in Space, and I think what we'll do is we'll follow that up by another cue that you chose, uh, Fight at Kobe Dock, which a lot of people will instantly recognize either by the title or certainly by the, by the music itself to talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to include that also. It, um, first of all, it's, it's one of the signature, uh, action scenes in the movie in particular, that shot that kind of starts in sort of close to bond and pulls out way, way out. Um, you know, he, you know, Barry weaves the, you only live twice theme into it. Uh, but you know, it just, it really helps move the sequence along. Um, yeah, it's like, I can, I can almost picture in my mind what's happening 
at what point I'm listening to the track. You know, it's like, oh, okay, that's that's when he's on top of the rooftop. Oh, that's when he's jumping off. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just you know the scene's very memorable. I think it's memorable in part because large part because of of Barry's music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I just that that was one I wanted to include. All right. Well, you, you're in for a treat, listeners. Let's we're going to listen to two different cues from the film. You only live twice. The first one's called Capsule in Space, and the second one will be Flight at Kobe Dock, and they're both written by the maestro John Barry.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's Patreon.com.
I've not mentioned it before, but I should point out that bumper music you just heard was written by listener and friend Terry Wallstrom. Thanks, Terry. By the way, we're talking about how beautiful the uh, the title song is. Uh, not only is the music beautiful, but the words are as well. And uh, 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 the lyricist was Leslie Brickus. Okay, yeah. Who, of course, had uh, worked on Goldfinger with him before too. So, uh, right, yeah. and and uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which of course oh, that's wasn't. Right. Which wasn't used in the film, but but elements of this of of that song are in the Thunderball score. Um, oh, all throughout, yeah, yeah. And you know, one thing about "You Only Live Twice," and maybe this is the reason why Nancy Sinatra had such difficulty with it. It's like it's really different from a lot of the songs she sang. Yeah, um, she, you know, like these boots were made for walking, and "Last of the Secret Agents" are both kind of you know they're belted out kind of thing and i i've seen i think it was an interview with nancy sinatra where she was like saying are you sure you're i'm the one you want i said no you're the you're the sound we want um for whatever reason well uh, and she was hot too i mean you know because of the record or whatever so it, right but 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 barry did see something in her style in her style that could be turned into what he was doing with you only live twice i mean yes she was very popular that that, that obviously was a so yeah, I mean, I think uh, yeah, I think Nancy Sinatra was. I mean, it ended up being, it worked. But you're right, there was a lot of multiple takes they had to piece together of the vocal in order to make it work. You know, with with No Time to Die coming out, and and uh, you know, again, unless you've been in a coma for the last several weeks, I mean, you can't help but hear about it. And everybody seems to have a lot of opinions about about that film in particular. But I, looking for more of a broad uh, perspective, I'm kind of curious. How do you, um, what do you think of the evolution of the films over time? And I don't mean just the last couple of ones or just Daniel Craig's ones, but just over time, do you, how do you feel? I mean, just generally, how do you feel about it or what observations do you have? Well, I think, let's see. Well, they start off doing four fairly faithful Fleming adaptations. Mm, okay. Then you only live twice was the first time they kind of threw out the plot and kind of did their own plot. I mean, you only live twice is interesting in that for a writer, they went with Roald Dahl who yeah. didn't have much of a history of, of writing screenplays. And they went with Lewis Gilbert for directing. Now today we remember him for doing these big expansive James Bond movies, but you know, I mean, he had done like Alfie before, before this, he was, he was not sort of your first pick as a, action director right um so it's like the the creative choices were more interesting in terms of personnel than they were in kind of the movie um because maybe they felt like okay these new guys need training wheels or something but you know (laughs) but but then you come with you know majesties and majesties i have i've i'm on record as saying this i've written this to me, that is the most faithful Fleming adaptation. Yes, in the series. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there, there are some changes. There always are, but, uh, but yeah, and it's, and I remember going to see the movie, and because in my my house, you know, we also watched the Avengers, <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know going in that uh, Tracy got killed. And like I was spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was devastated going home. My my mo- my mother took me and got home. My dad now he had read the book, he, so he knew, and he was just he was he was a little sly about it. He said, 
So, what'd you think? <laughs> oh, this is, <laughs> I'm desolated. And it was kind of like, well, can't get, don't always get what you want. And that's not his quote, but that was kind of the tone of what he said. Yeah, yeah. But and, and then from there, I mean, it, it it you know it took a turn, and then so so I mean, I mean, I agree with you. The first four, and then Majesties were pretty faithful to the original source yeah. material. But I, I, I'm all right. I'm I'm just going to express a little bit of myself, and then maybe you can react to it. Okay. To to, to me, let's see. Basically, for the most part, with one exception, License to Kill. For the most part, these were escapist fun movies that were could essentially be watched by the entire family. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there, there were some racy, a little bit racy things, but by and large, most kids, and you know, half the time, I didn't get what some of the one-liners were or. Or what was going on, but in essence, it was escapism type entertainment. You know, exotic locations and a couple of funny one-liners and incredible stunts. And then, obviously, with Craig, there was this huge change. Now, a lot of people embraced it. I loved, by the way, I loved Casino Royale. Yeah, again, because it was close to the source material. Right. But but it really made a big turn. So I guess that's kind of where I'm going with with. I mean, do you see it the same way, or do you see? And it's okay if you see it differently. I'm just kind of curious. Oh well, basically, basically, there, there's a quote attributed to Harry Saltzman that uh, the Bond series was sadism for the entire family. Um, <laughs> yes, um, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, in the '70s, they—that's when they kind of first became, you know, seemed to try to hook on to what was popular at the time. You know, Live yeah. and Let Die had you know elements of black black exploitation films. Man with Golden Gun, Kung Fu films. Um, but, you know, it's, but at the same time, you know, they were, I once saw an interview on a syndicated uh, TV show called The Mike Douglas Show. And they had oh, yeah. like, my, Roger Moore was the co-host and Albert R. Broccoli was a guest. And he made the comment, you know, something to the effect they kind of went, they kind of got the stronger books first. And so like the more recent books weren't like the, the best also more time had uh, elapsed, you know, since the, since the books had been published. Um, you know, you might agree or disagree, but at least that's, that's the argument he, you know, broccoli presented on that show. Um, yeah. License to kill. I do remember that because, uh, you know, I, I went to see it on the very first day, it, you know, it was out back then. They didn't have all these Thursday night preview showings. And right. Oh yeah. Yeah. So this was like the first showing, like on Friday afternoon, I took the day off, took my wife to go see it. And, um, I was hyped up for it cause I knew they were going to be taking some chances they hadn't done before, but you know, my wife, she, she couldn't stand it. She still can't stand it. <laughs> she, <laughs> Uh, she, you know, cause I, I asked her, well, how, how, well, what'd you think? And she said it was fine. <laughs> and I could tell why the way she said it, it wasn't fine. Yeah, that was and code I, for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, she just, she just thought it was unnecessarily violent. Um, you know, the thing with Anthony Zerby's head blowing up, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that might've pushed her over the edge. Well, yeah. And you bring up a good point too. A lot of times I, I realize they are a, a product of the times. And, and concerning the more recent films, I, you know, the, the, the common narrative is, well, you know, the Jason Bourne and Mission Impossible movies kind of changed everything. So that's why Bond had to change. Well, I mean, OK, I kind of accept that to a to a degree. But 
Well, you know, I'll get into it in a little bit because I I, I want to play some more music, but I, I'll probably come back to this in uh, in a moment. I will I will mention one thing. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on this, and and this is a bias I have, and I fully recognize it. I fully recognize it, and I just can't get away from it. With only one or two exceptions, well, with only one or two exceptions in the whole series, if it wasn't scored by John Barry, I don't like it as much. Yeah, am, am, am I crazy? No, no. It, I mean, Barry created what, this is not, I, I can't claim credit for this term, but he created the Bond musical template. Yeah. And and it's just, it, it in my mind, it tends to work best, you know, when you play within that template. For example, one score for me that I appreciate more than I used to is George Martin for Live and Let Die. Yeah, a lot of people um, say that. Yeah. yeah, because he was able to weave in the title song into his score. He, of course, had helped produce that uh, song as well. So, I mean, so it was something he was very familiar with. Um, where it tends to get jarring is when it's like either not when it's not in the template, and uh, and that is uh, well. Eric Serra's, you know, the obvious example, <laughs> but but also Marvin Hamlish. Uh, Mar, you know, he, I mean, he, yeah, he dropped the James Bond theme in there now and then. I mean, it's a good score, but it's kind of like less in the Barry uh, sandbox than than other composers. Um, and, you, and you know, and you know what's interesting? I like the music in the movie more than I do on the album because I think that those were separate recordings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's like, you know, another one that gets kind of mixed reactions. I tend to like it, but I know some people don't, is Bill Conti on For uh, For Your Eyes Only. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not like one of my favorites, but I'm okay with it, yeah. Well, well I guess in, in, in that case, I thought his gun barrel thing was so high energy. I love that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, it got me going. And so... Later stuff that might not be quite up to that level, I tend to give him a pass, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but no, he had he had some good he had some good stretches, put it that way. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's let's listen to some more cues from other Bond films. Um, another one you had chosen is a uh, is from another score I really like. I know a lot of people don't like the movie as much, but to me, the score make, it kind of elevates it. Now, the film I'm talking about is Diamonds Are Forever, and the cue you had uh, wanted to play was called 007 and Counting. Uh, tell us a little bit about your wanting to choose that to, to play today. Well, that, of course, is the segment. It, it, we, we now know what Blofeld's plot is. You know, what the, what, you know, we now know that the diamonds have gone into this satellite. And so this is when the, uh, you know, the satellite under Blofeld's control is, you know, shooting missile bases, shooting submarines, you know, doing, causing all sorts of havoc. And again, because you're going back and forth, because you, you see an act of destruction, then you go back to bond with Willard White, uh, trying to, you know, piece together what's happening. And so, you know, the action goes back and forth. As a result, Barry's score goes back and forth. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it but and it's not bombastic action music either. It's kind of just kind of amping up the threat. Um, 
you know, I mean, I could see today if someone, you know, a composer might score that scene and then like have like all this big bombastic stuff, you know, when that laser satellite, you know, shot and Barry doesn't do that. It's, it's more like kind of just, it's carrying you along, but it's doing so in a relatively subtle way. Yeah. And, and that's going to, that's going to lead to another question I want to get to here in a moment. Um, because I, I'd be curious on your views on that. Let's, um, let's go have a listen to this. This is a, again from the film Diamonds Are Forever. The cue is called 007 and Counting. And once again, it's written by John Barry.
I, I want to pick up on that, uh, the, the, the idea about the bombastic, because my, my question was going to be, what do you, what are your thoughts on the state of film music today? Because, and I think most of my listeners kind of know where I'm coming from on this, but I tend to agree with you a lot of times, and in, in, in particular, the, the current film that's out, the, you know, the, the action, action music in most of the movies these days just does nothing for me. It doesn't seem to have any real melody to it or rhythm. It, 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 it's, it's more atmospheric than it is music. I don't know. Um, and I know they're competing with sound effects and, and that's part of the problem too, but I do find it a little bit more bombastic. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to admit when, uh, I heard that Hans Zimmer was, uh, drawing the assignment or as I like to say, Hans Zimmer and Steve Mazzaro, because you right. know, Zimmer, Zimmer always reminded everybody about Mazzaro, even if the publicity campaign. To his didn't. credit, fortunately, yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, and he did he did it consistently. He did it at least three times that I that I can remember off the top of my head. Anyway, I wasn't the most enthusiastic. I had the I was afraid it was we were going to get like the Dark Knight Rises mm-hmm. kind of thing, the boom, you know, which Zimmer does a lot. Uh, but I was surprised it was a little more, it was more, um, it was more subtle than I was anticipating. Now, part of it is because he was dipping into the John Barry, yeah. <laughs> on Barry well. Uh, and he was and, a big fan, by the way, apparently a real admirer. Yes. Yes. Um, so it was, so it was like, I was about to say it's the least like, least zimmer like score i've heard in a while i'm, I'm huh. that might that might be a little too glib but i it, it's a little more versatile let me put it that way yeah th- than other zimmer scores i've heard um you know real quick there is a youtube video and i forget it was i forget it, it might be called something like the death of melody or the end of melody and it's funny i i saw this uh it was made before no time to die, but two of the examples of how there's like lack of melody. One in music was Hans Zimmer (laughs) (laughs) and, and in songs was Billie Eilish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and in fact, there was an interview that Barry gave a while ago that he used to refer to a lot of the music that you hear now. He he would say it was QE music. And I think, I think that's what he, if it didn't have melody, it was more QE music. And that, that was, he said that the bonds really required a lot of that, but I, you know, actually, I, I think he managed to avoid that to a great, great degree. He did, and you know, I, I saw. Oh, this was like on Twitter or something, and it was a, it was a well-established James Bond fan who was doing this. Was not a troll, but he said, but he said John Barry was uh, hot take. John Barry was terrible at action music, and like, huh. no, <laughs> like. Uh, I, I I don't know where that came from, but uh, maybe by today's I, listening standards amongst the younger people, I mean maybe I could maybe. see them saying that, but it doesn't mean I agree with it. But I could see them saying that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one other thing before we get into the next cue, because gosh, I had a whole bunch of questions. I'm trying to squeeze them all in. Just, I'm sure you were like me. Just how excited were you when they re-released a lot of those scores in 2003 that Lucas Kendall was uh, responsible for? Was that was that like one of the most exciting things ever for you? It certainly was for me. Well, yes, because we finally had a chance to hear stuff that had been excluded from uh, previous, you know, the earlier soundtrack releases. Um, like the gun barrels. I loved having all the gun barrels. It, the gun barrels. And also in You Only Live Twice, there's, I, I think the track is called James Bond in Japan. It's that sequence where 
Bond's gotten his briefing from him. He's, you know, in the submarine. He's now they're now going to shoot him toward the, uh, you know, Japanese shore. Right. And and you know, so it's like that. And then when he's in Tokyo for the first time, or at least in the movie. Oh, it's fabulous! Uh, in fact, yeah. in fact, here here's a little here's a little tip for those of you that are patrons on the bonus episode. We're going to play that. So, All right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I just yeah, I mean, it was a. Uh, and yet there's still there's still more out there that hasn't been done. And, and my listeners may recall there was an episode with Lucas where we talked about that. Apparently that, you know, any of the missing music from some of the later films, it, it's out there. I mean, it's on it's on tape. It's it's available. It's just a matter of they kind of ran out of money and, and ran out of right. uh, energy, I guess, to do it. But even the Moonraker stuff, the man with the golden gun stuff. I mean, it's all still it's available. Just no one's been the impetus behind it yet. So. What, one can, that really, be, I'm sorry, Frank, I was going to say one that really benefited was Diamonds Are Forever because, oh, yeah. because you know, if, if you kind of notice in like the original releases, the, the movies that came out around Christmas time, the, you know, the soundtracks are like a little sparse, you know, because I, I assume it's like there wasn't enough time to have a full score really, uh, you know, Thunderball's that way, the original Thunderball release in 65. Right, Di- diamonds is like that, you know. There's, and and so when they came back with, uh, you know, with diamonds, you there's like a lot more music like uh, that hadn't been included. Like, oh, at the, at the oil rig when they drop Bond off, he's inside yeah, well, that all big the, all blue. the fight music too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, Bill, yes. I'll, I'll have to tell you what you have to do is, and I know you, you haven't listened. You've listened. You've listened to some of the episodes. But I do have one where I believe it or not, I actually interviewed John Barry once when I was a really young kid, and we actually talk about the score for Diamonds Forever and and the album. So you'll be interested in hearing his thoughts on that. That's that's going to the top of my to do list, Frank. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> hey, the um, uh, one other cue you had chosen is another favorite of mine, and I actually um, I might be so bold to say that this this film might be in my top five, it, or if it isn't, it's real close. The film I'm talking about is Living Daylights. Oh yeah, uh, and, and and I liked Timothy. Dal- I liked Timothy Dalton as the character and as an actor. I, I didn't care for License to Kill too much, but it wasn't about him so much. Um, but I really liked Living Daylights, and and, and again on the re-release of the score, where they were able to uh, put some extra music that wasn't on the original uh, soundtrack, is is the one we're going to play. It's called Exercise at Gibraltar. It starts off with a gun barrel and then goes straight into the music for the opening pre-title sequence. I just love that. Uh, and, tell, I'll, and I'll have a point tell me about, about it. that when we're done listening. But uh, well, but well, real quick about the gun barrels. Sure. So if, you, if you notice, after a point, Barry stopped using the guitar, or electric or otherwise. Right. Well, but I, I was always curious about this. But in the book, the music of James Bond by John Burlingame, apparently, plug, you know, plug. Well, well, <laughs> it's no, okay. I, it's it's good. It's excellent. If you don't have it, you should have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had uh, never mind. It was something uh, <laughs> about when we're not recording. Anyway, um, but apparently the deal was Barry concluded only Connery was worthy of the electric guitar. So, so yeah, well, it, you know, and you're right. And again, I'm sorry. I'm going to plug. If you go back to that episode that I did with John Barry, we talk about that too. Oh, so okay. you, you should hear his thoughts on that. So I, I, I look forward to that. Then. Yeah, yeah, really, because I, I picked right up on that too. And again, this was in 1981 when I talked to him. So I, yeah, I addressed it because I wanted to know. 
Which is funny um, because Hamlish used the electric guitar for Spy yeah. to Love Me, and and uh, Michael Kamen used the electric guitar for right. License to Kill. So they right. didn't feel bound by that, obviously. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was interesting history for it. Well, let's let's have it a listen to this one. This is a uh, the cue is called Exercise at Gibraltar. It's the beginning of the film called The Living Daylights, and once again, it's written by our favorite composer John Barry.
one thing that we haven't talked about that we definitely need to, and that is your your affinity for the character and 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 your affection for it is so strong that you've actually been a very active participant um, on the World Wide Web when it comes to all things Bond and being able to express opinions or or have interviews or gather information. You uh, you were part of a, a website that started in 2008 that was originally called Her Majesty's Secret Servant. And, I, and if, if, if I understand it correctly, it's kind of converted now over to Spy Command. Talk to us a little bit about that association. How did it start? And uh, and just a little bit about that. Well, well, first of all, Her Majesty's Secret Servant was an e-magazine that began in 97. And oh, I'm what, sorry. Okay. No, that, that's fine. But, you know, 2008 was the blog was they spun off a blog oh, okay. that has since become the spike. It's it, the history can be a little hard to follow <laughs> for those who didn't live it. But anyway, but, but her majesty's secret servant, uh, was in, was organized by a couple guys who live in the Chicago area. They were friends with Raymond Benson, who had just, you know, who is now right. early in his tenure as the conti- continuation, uh, novel author. Um, and what happened was there used to be, New, internet news groups and they went by name well the one was called alt fan james bond and so what they did was they recruited people who had been you know active on it It was basically like a message board mm-hmm. you know it was no, no graphics anything like that but they recruited people who had been active on that i was among them and so they organized it by they had different departments i was put in charge of the other spies department, but I still wrote articles about Bond. Uh-huh. And, and I, I remember like after Playboy of all places gave it a favorable mention. I think they may wow. have done, I think they may have like, you know, mentioned James Bond websites and it wasn't like a full article. I think it was just kind of something in the front of the front of the book, but um, you and I ever, you know, look at that magazine. I know. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, <laughs> But so it, it definitely made a splash. And, uh, and I, I guess, I, I guess this is still true, uh, since, since it's offline now, but at one point I was, after it'd been going for a while, I was like the only person who'd had an article in like every issue. And, um, and I was like, do you have any ideas? I said, no, I don't really have any ideas. I'm, I may not be able to help you this, this issue. And they said, oh, you got to, you got to keep your streak going. <laughs> okay all right i'll do this you know all right well you put it that way i'll i'll do the streak as i came up with something but it was a chance to do you could do longer pieces and and some of them are indeed magazine length um but anyway I was, I was very proud of that association so then what happened in 2008 was they decided that they wanted to have a presence in between issues. So that's how the blog got started. And it was originally called the HMSS weblog. And it was like, Hey, but you know, it's like, it's not ours. It's, it's all of ours. So like you, if you feel like contributing, go ahead. Initially I was kind of, I wasn't sure, but I decided to give it a try. And then after a while, well, I got, I got hooked and it, I quickly became the main one, you know, you know, doing articles on that blog. And so eventually, like I said, the last issue of, of Her Majesty's Secret Servant was in 2011. Uh, it went offline in 2014. And I, I took over the blog um, because it originally said the HMSS weblog 
and with this tagline, the official blog of Her Majesty's Secret Servant. Well, then after uh, the parent site went offline, I came up with a new logo taking off that tagline um, and just a different design. Uh, but then it was basically the uh, organizers of the original site. I don't know. They, I think they wanted to make it clear this, was, this had nothing to do with them. I thought it was pretty clear because I, you know, I'd done an article about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Explain the new logo, but okay. So that's when I changed the name to the spy command. Oh, okay. So, and so how do people uh, that are interested, because I would highly encourage you, it's it, it, interesting opinions, uh, you know, uh, connections to, to, to articles that are out there. You keep a real close eye on, on what's going on in the uh, journalism circles about James Bond and those sorts of things. So how do people find this blog if they're interested in, uh, reading it either on the web or, 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 or as I sometimes see it on my Facebook feed. Can you just kind of tell us about how we connect with that? Yeah, the, the URL is hmssweblog.wordpress.com. Okay. Uh, and then I have some subsidiary sites. Uh, and you can, you know, the easiest way to find them is if you find the blog down, I think, if it's the right or the left rail off the top of my head, but you know, I've got links to those sites because I have one thing called the uh, Spy Command Feature Story Index. And what that was after uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service servant went offline, I wanted to have a place where people could find uh, the stuff that I'd written you know, for that site. And I was able to get most of it. So I started that site and there's links to it. Um, and then, and then since then it's become the place I occasionally get people ask if they can write a a guest article and sometimes they can be really long. So I put it, you know, at at the feature story index rather than the main blog. Uh, So, so if you see the homepage, there's not a whole lot of graphics to it. It's just, it's the stories. And of course, this is also the place where I store the Bond 25 timeline, which has become, mm. <laughs> which became, I'll, I'll explain it br- very briefly. You know, by 2018, the, the no time to die developments had become so convoluted. I couldn't keep it straight in my head anymore. <laughs> so I, so I created the timeline basically as a research guide for myself and um, so, you know, so like I say, on the uh, feature stories index, you see the links to the different different parts. And I say parts because it ended up being a seven part epic <laughs> between <laughs> between all the convoluted stuff, not the least of which, you know, is the pandemic. Um, in fact, I was going through uh, as we record this, I was going through part one last night and. Uh, Oh man, good times. You know, at one point it was going to be called Shatterhand. Another point, oh yeah, it's going to be called Shatterhand, but be based on a Raymond Benson novel. Oh yeah, it's uh, Suzanne Beer is going to direct. Oh, and Tom Hilson's going to star. And, <laughs> and I have a video which I embedded Tom Hilson's. I don't think that's happening, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, I, it was quite a journey, wasn't it, for Bond 25 at the. Yeah. It's quite amazing. Yeah. I tell you what, uh, but before we officially wrap up, I'm, I'm going to add an extra cue in there that you had chosen. We're going to go back to your favorite film, You Only Live Twice, 
uh, and this is, you know, this is one of several that you had sent me and I'm just going to go ahead and play it right now for our listeners. And then, then we'll be wrapping up the, the cue is from again, from the film, you only live twice. It's called Bonnevert's world war three. It's written by John Barry. So let's have a listen. So what's in the future for Bill? Um, any any uh, plans for the uh, for the blog that we should know about, or any other things outside of that that uh, people might be interested in? Um, you know, I, right now I think my main plan is to uh, kind of uh, recuperate from No Time to Die. So, I, I I have seen it twice. Uh, the second time required some uh, pretty intense negotiations with my wife. So I'm that that might be it for me uh seeing the movie in the theater i you know um so yeah well, you, you know and we didn't get to that and i guess and i guess we should briefly if we could um what, what are your thoughts on on the new film well i liked it uh i needed to see it the second time really different because when i saw it the first time i was kind of bouncing back and forth between b plus and a minus and seeing it again I went with a minus. Uh, the second time I saw it, I saw it on the biggest screen near me. It's not an IMAX, but it's a regional theater chain, and they they claim the screen is bigger than an IMAX. Whatever case, it was big enough for me. And yeah. uh, um, also trying to see things I you know missed the first time. Uh, so I go with a minus. I, I think the first hour is really tight and and really good. Uh, I appreciated the Fleming elements in it. Um, 
Second half is maybe a little softer. It, it, I will say this, where I have problems with it, it was kind of things I didn't think about while I was watching the movie. It was more like when I'm driving home, which I think, okay, if, if they can accomplish that, I think that's a good job. It's it's when something is happening while you're watching it and you're going, what? And like, oh, and that's, that's when they're not doing so good. Mm-hmm. And I may, as an example of the latter, not, not in No Time to Die, this is in Skyfall. I remember the first time I saw it and Em's reading that poem in Parliament while right. Silva and her men are bearing down on her. It's like, I didn't like it the first time. And when once I you know had it on home video, it's like, I didn't like it. <laughs> my it, it, my uh, dislike for it intensified. And I know a lot of people in Britain say, oh, that's great. You know, it's, it encompasses British values. It's like, you know, it's emotion rather than story logic. Oh, maybe so. But I just, I just found it like M was being, how many people is M responsible for the death of <laughs> by, by yeah. insisting on reading that poem instead of letting people get out? Well, you know, it's, um, there've been so many reviews out there for anybody that kind of follows the, uh, the internet or Facebook groups or those sorts of things. It seems like everybody's had a review of it. And I have, I've really tried to do a, 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 a thorough job of listening to all of them. And, and while, you know, while you're my guest, I, I've got to put in my two cents. I think means. it is, I think it is a wonderful piece of cinema and it's a great film. I'm not so sure it's a great bond film. Mm. And, uh, I'm sorry. The ending disturbs me, especially since my hero for over 50 years is standing there helpless saying, okay, missiles, come on. He's not doing anything. I realize he's shot up and he's got this emotional connection. To me, it would have been far more powerful, far more powerful if he escapes and either, you know, he dives into the ocean and the explosion happens. You either don't know if he made it or he makes it and he, and, and he has to, he knows he can't talk with Madeline or, or his daughter anymore. So he has to view them from afar while they don't know he's there. Think of how emotionally powerful that would have been if you're looking for that. So anyway, and that and too much machine gun play. I've never seen so much machine gun play in a Bond film. And that really kind of, after a while, I got kind of old. I don't know. Well, you know, I agree with you on that that last point in particular because, like, I mean, how many guys, how many guys do we have to see Bond shoot? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the, the body count was insane. And I, and, I, and I don't know, it just, it seemed out of place for a Bond film. You know, you... Okay, you, what you just said about your idea for an alternate ending gives me this notion of something they could have done. Like, he gets away in the manner you describe, and then you have a scene. You know, it's Bond's funeral, and Madeline's there, and daughter's there, ah. and, and the, you know, M, and everybody's there. And then they all go off, and then the camera pulls back, and it's like Bond's watching from a distance because he can't approach it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that might have. I like that too. Well, anyway, they didn't. They didn't ask us. So that's what right. Can I say? <laughs> <laughs> that's hey, right. you know, you know, Bill. Gosh, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this chat. I really have. I feel like we're, I feel like we're kindred spirits in the in the world of James Bond and film music. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I hope you've been uh, been enjoying it as well. Oh, I have I definitely have. This this was great and. Uh, yeah, it's I, I like film music, I like TV music, and yeah. uh, hey, real quick, can I just give a plug to something else? About this relates to Jerry Goldsmith, real quick. Please, yeah, two of his earlier earlier things that there's a company called La La Land Records, and they do these limited edition uh, things. Um, 
so one thing, they've had a series of these called the Quinn Martin Collection. Quinn Martin ah. is this TV producer. So volume one was Cop and Detective series. So I, I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, J- Jerry Goldsmith scoring Barnaby Jones, even though he disliked it. Anyway, that score is on this disc. It's, it's got, it, it highlights music from four different shows, but they lead off with uh, Goldsmith and uh, Barnaby Jones. And then the other thing was they put out it's actually two things. It's like a television pilot that he scored called Archer, not to be confused with the the uh, cartoon, spy cartoon show. This was a private detective. Uh, it only lasted six episodes, and, and Goldsmith scored the pilot. So it has his score for that pilot, and then it's with a movie I've never heard of called Warning Shot hmm. uh, from the 60s. It's a movie starring David Jansen. So anyway, it's it's got all that together on the one disc. So I don't know. I mean, these are limited editions. Once they hit their pre-designated sales number, then they can't print anymore. So I don't know if they're still available, but if you're a Goldsmith fan, it uh, might be of interest to you. These actually, the, the last few years have been just wonderful for film score lovers, particularly of scores going back, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or whatever. It's uh, been a goldmine out there. So yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Well, once again, uh, Bill, really appreciate you joining us today. Be sure to check out his blog, The Spy Command. I'll uh, try and post all the information on our uh, Facebook page uh, that is known as What's the Score. So uh, that's going to about do it for us today. There's uh, at this point only, oh, well, I do want to mention, I want to thank my uh, patrons on Patreon again for supporting the program. Uh, I'm a little bit behind on some uh, bonus episodes, but don't worry, they will be coming up. uh, And also one with Bill here shortly. So again, my sincere thanks for your support. And with that, uh, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.